1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today I'm gonna be talking with Joe Troman, lead guitarist and co-founder of Fall Out Boy. I first met Joe in 2006 when I did a feature on the band and then spent more time with him the next year when I wrote Fall Out Boy's Rolling Stone cover story, and I've gotten to know him pretty well over the years. But Joe has a new book called None of This Rocks, and it's a very different kind of rock memoir. It's both very funny and very poignant, very revealing. He talks about his struggles with mental health and drug use and sometimes just general self-loathing. The book provides a new look at one of the biggest bands of the 21st century, and also just a portrait of a really interesting guy with a really interesting life. Joe's also the guitarist in a hard rock side project called The Damn Things that's definitely worth your time as well. But I'm happy to have Joe on the show today to talk about his book, Life in Fall Out Boy, and a whole lot more. So
0: why did you want to write a book? Well, I didn't want to write a book (laughs) at first. So I started in a very roundabout way kind of like writing in television. And so right. through, through that, I got a, lit manag- a literary manager, for those listening that don't know the terms, lit, short for literary. So my lit manager one day was like, you've had an interesting life, you can write, I think you should write a book. And I said, I absolutely never want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, then he goes, yeah, you probably can't. And then I said, yeah, I can. <laughs> and then I started writing the pitch. Yeah, I just started writing like a chapter. Like I wrote a chapter or what would be a chapter. I think and actually a version of it ended up in the book. And uh, I found it very therapeutic. I really enjoyed it. And so that started me on
1: the journey towards writing it. I learned a lot about you reading this book. I'm so sorry. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I really enjoyed it. I I love reading very revealing memoirs by people I've spent time interviewing so I can learn all the stuff I didn't get. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) I would have given you more if we had more time.
1: You've had a chance to kind of go over your life story, which I think probably helps the writing process because not to repeat the word process, but you've processed this stuff through therapy. So I imagine that kind of helped you put it on the page.
0: Yes. I mean, I've been through my mental health issues alone ad nauseum for over two decades. So I have a decent grip on them, though I'm learning more about them every day. (laughs) Every session, every new diagnosis. I live in my head, unfortunately, for better or worse. So instead of living in the moment, which I need to do more of, and I'm working on that through therapy, I'm constantly thinking about past experiences, what I could have done better, how I could have approached them differently. The mistakes I've made. I think while living like that is not recommended, it works for writing because I've thought about these memories a lot and these situations a lot, so it was easy to pull them out and put them on the page.
1: Your constant practice of self-castigation over past deeds has finally paid off. It works. Yeah. It works in this instance and yeah. this instance alone. And I don't even know if it was a, a good idea, but I did it. What did you learn about yourself specifically from the process of writing this thing? There were a couple of friends who were like, You really need to take it easy on yourself, man. You are hard on yourself. But, I, you know,
0: in, in being in the band that I am in and writing a book that is somewhat about the band that I'm in, but also not, one conscious effort I had was to not throw my band members under the bus, my band under the bus. A, I don't want to, I have no reason to. B, I have to be in that band. Still, <laughs> I'd like to. So there are a couple of reasons. But, and I have such an easy time throwing myself under un, under the bus. And to less of an extent, but still not far less my deceased mother, who I talk about in the book a lot. So it's, it's second nature for me to, to throw myself under the bus and to take myself down a couple of pegs. But it's probably not good for me to do that. But again, good for the book, I suppose.
1: It does provide a a nice look at Fall Out Boy, but I could feel your caution to a to a certain extent. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, but again, it's like Fall Out Boy has grown up, glowed up, whatever term you want to use, in a different era than you know. For instance, like classic rock bands, you read a lot of their authorized and unauthorized biographies or memoirs and. There's a lot of crazy sex, drugs, and rock and roll things that have happened. That wasn't so much the, the quote-unquote emo movement. I mean, there are drugs. And yes, people have intercourse, but it's not to the level of debauchery. I just don't have those stories. And I'm not going to sell other people's stories in my book. And I really, despite, like, I'm not going to lie and say that I do not fight with the members of Fall up Boy. <laughs> that we don't get along sometimes or often, but we are friends. And I don't wanna even say terrible things about my friends in a book that's gonna live on for forever, especially if I don't really have anything terrible to say about them. I might feel bad about them for a moment, but that moment passes.
1: It should be noted at this point that you wrote this book yourself, which isn't the norm for, for people in, in rock bands, it must be said.
0: Thank you for saying that. Yeah, that is in putting together the pitch for this. I was hoping I had written these pitch pages well enough to convince a publisher that I didn't need a co-writer or really something, really co-writer, ghostwriter, however you want to put it. I mean, I love, there are a lot of, you know, rock memoirs that I love, but, and you can tell they're like in the voice of the person. One specific one I really like a lot is Slashes, but I know Slash didn't. I mean, the, the, he didn't write it. It, it has another, as uh, an author's name written on I'm, it.
1: I'm laughing because not only did he not write it himself, but the last time I talked to him, he was trying to deny things that he put in the book because like many of the people who oh, have really? written books, he forgot what he told the guy and is in the book that he ah. got too honest about. It. So this happens a, a lot, which is very funny. He regrets uh, what he
0: put, well, I can never deny because I wrote yeah. it myself. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, of course there's an ego. There's, an, there's ego baked into that, right? Because I wanted to show everyone I can write. I can do it myself. I think that was a big part of it. It was both ego, it was a challenge. And I was hoping maybe in me writing it on my own or being given the opportunity to do so, the book would be a
1: little different than other quote unquote rock memoirs. I wanted to start by talking about your place in the band, which you, you know, it's, it's, you talk a lot about just the insecurity you had early on, which was really unjustified on a lot of levels. I mean, you, you, you forgot that you had all the stuff you contributed Yeah, to, you know, e- even to the first big hit, Sugar, I'm going down. and various parts on that album. It's like you blocked out the things you were contributing and it was a bummer to see you giving yourself such a hard time over things you didn't need to give yourself a hard time over.
0: Yeah, I'm bummed out about it too. My wife often tells me that I'll get like a piece of good news and I'll feel good for about 5 minutes then I go right back down. Again, I can't I can't coast on it. I do not live with it for a long time. It doesn't give me fuel. I'm looking for the next thing. And I think in that really unhealthy process, we're using the word process a lot in this yeah. episode of your podcast. But in, in that journey, I, I forget. I, I forget. I think almost, I wonder, and this I don't know the answer to this. This is a subconscious thing, but I wonder if I'm doing it like willfully, subconsciously but willfully, in my brain working against itself. It took like, you know, it, it took talking to other members of my band to remember that stuff. It took, you know, talking to Patrick to remember what I had contributed to this song or that song. We did it again recently, you know. We talked about it again recently. He reminded me other songs I had contributed, that you know, this thing or that thing too, and I, 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 and I, and I realized I have a problem with, and this feels really terrible to say. I have a problem getting any true satisfaction from any of that. Instead of like it should satisfy me, but at the end of the day. I don't even know if that's what I want anymore. I used to really want that stuff. I think earlier on when you first met me and we were doing, you are interviewing the band, I obsessively wanted to feel this ownership over the band through creative input. And I wasn't even seeing the creative input I had at the time. And that should have given me that satisfaction. But it wasn't giving me that satisfaction. So what did I really want? I'm still looking for that. At the end of the day, I'm still and, I, and I'm still trying to find that sense of calm. You know, I, I even woke up this morning feeling uncomfortable, and I don't know why. Hmm. I don't. I really don't know why. It it's that's part of you know my really sloppy journey with my team of mental health professionals. <laughs> you know, I also I, I'll. I'll, t- I'll tell you this, I, I recently, so I, I see a therapist, but I also see a psychiatrist for medication, and I was having some trouble with some new medication I was on, so we went off of it. My, therap- or my psychiatrist goes, well, we can't take you off this other medication, you know, because you're bipolar. <laughs> Never heard that before in my life. So I was uh, diagnosed with a type 2 bipolar disorder, which comes with like, it answers all these questions for me. This like weird, you know, waking up uncomfortable and irritated. Like this mm. irritation is like a symptom of bipolar too. And I'm still in the midst of trying to find the right medications and, you know, talking about ketamine treatments, which are, have been approved by the FDA for severe depressives. And it's, you know, I do think, you know, I mentioned my brain fighting against itself and I do think there is a physiological element to this that goes beyond logic.
1: The other thing I, I just had no idea was that you were like, you describe yourself as sort of being fucked up on drugs during the peak of the band's success. And yes. I, I, really did, I really didn't know that. I hid it well
0: from a lot of people until it got really bad. I was taking a lot of you know opioids. I was taking pill. I think, especially when you're young, you don't see a pill any differently than Advil or food. You know, you're not thinking about what this is doing to you physically on the inside of your body, how this could kill you. I didn't feel like shooting heroin. That scared me. I didn't feel like smoking crack. Didn't feel like all these things that really, especially in the 90s, had been built up to be really terrifying. Plus, I had some friends that had died of in- intravenous heroin use. So I was already terrified based off of that. And yet, still here, I am taking pell Fort heroin, but not seeing it as that. And I just, it was just so, you know... <laughs> youth is wasted right those that are young i was not being very smart with my youth and i was wasting it away trying to quell these illogical obsessive thoughts with drugs that honestly didn't seem that harmful because they were made in a laboratory and came in a prescription bottle well Except some of the ones I would just buy from basically a guy's hand. But they were still made in the laboratory. They looked nice. They had etchings on them and had a V etched on them, and they looked very professional. Were you concealing this from the guys in the band to a certain extent as well? I don't know how much they knew and how much they didn't know. We have, you know, we've always had like some communication issues. I think we've been a, we've tiptoed around each other to a degree. I mean I mentioned in the book that I was outed for my drug use by Scotty in from Anthrax when he saw me and just told me that I looked green. And that was embarrassing cuz I look up you know, I look up to him and,
1: and this was this was yeah. all the way after the hiatus. Yeah. After Four Boy had already gotten back together.
0: Yeah, I mean that just goes to show how strong the pull is. I guess that's it. I mean, it is addiction, right? But at the same time, it took one person that I respected to tell me I looked like a junkie basically to make me go, I'm done with this. Now, I, I quit in a dangerous way too. You're not supposed to quit cold turkey on that stuff. It can kill you, but I quit cold turkey. It didn't kill me, I'm here. I don't know how much, I, I don't think about this that much And saying that I don't think will cause me to lie awake at night, but I don't know how much damage I did to myself by doing all of those prescription drugs for those years, but I did it. I don't know, I wouldn't recommend anyone else do it. And I, you know, nowadays when I, I've had like two back surgeries since that addiction process or that usage process we'll just say and we're really going ham on process here and i uh, i will take like a narcotic painkiller because you have i mean after you get your your back cut up under your stomach cut open which i've had to do for two different back surgeries you have to take something to kill the pain. But I hate those things. I want to get off them as soon as possible. If I've ever had any sort of back pain that's precipitated a surgery, I, I, I tell them I do not want narcotics. I did prior to one back surgery. I was in an Australia. And luckily, I was in Australia in a way because I was able to get very quick medical care, <laughs> It's very easy. And I had a doctor come to my room, in my hotel room, and he brought me, I think, Vicodin. And I was having a, I, I was, I had a slip disc. I couldn't walk. It was, I was in need of surgery because I have degenerative disc disease. So it just slipped and it was gone and it, it was out and I was ready to get cut open. And so I took this Vicodin and, and uh, I actually had such an adverse sick reaction to it. I felt so ill. It made me go, I'm never doing this again unless, you know, I'm post op. I've been cut open. I'm in. So much physical pain i need something but i try i really do actively stay away from it.
1: you say something really interesting which was first of all that you know i really got to understand the energy of fall Out boy especially in, in the early days like the absolute wild feral energy you guys had mm-hmm. on stage that it was really bringing that energy of the chicago hardcore scene into yeah. this pop punk construct that fall Out boy was and that was part of what makes you guys great and what made you and MyChem the last two rock bands ever to be big. So congrats on that. <laughs>
0: and I think to be fair to MyChem, I think they brought you know, New Jersey hardcore. They absolutely they were, did. It was very similar. So we're birds of a similar feather, which is um, why, you know, I mentioned again in that their book, you know, coming up together during the 2005 warp Tour when we both kind of blew up and we didn't think it was going to happen. We both it happened at the same time. Both of our singles dropped at the beginning of Warp Tour our crowds went from maybe a couple thousand a night to the entire park watching us every night and uh, we both didn't know how to handle it so we both kind of bonded over that back you know we both felt very si- And, like similar bands in similar situations
1: it is really interesting because you think about the efforts to sort of bring rock back in the first decade of the 2000s and mm-hmm. and it was and the things that people were focused on at first were the were the strokes and then the next thing was that 2004 thing of where Franz Ferdinand and Modest Mouse had their hits, and those were all great. They were. The, the thing that was, that really hit the masses, that hit teens and, and had really young kids loving rock again, and at the very center of pop culture for a while, was what we called emo, mm-hmm. in it's mainstream manifestation, and it was at the peak were, were Fall Out Boy and, and, and My Chem, and Fall Out Boy probably even a little bigger commercially, honestly. And that's why I've joked that the history of, of rock and roll as a popular medium went from uh, Fats Domino to Fall Boy. And that was <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But then I wonder in that, did, are we the death? Are we the death of it in that in analogy? Yeah. Why not get more specific and say that somehow it was you? Yeah. That, 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 that something I, you did wrong. I did it. Of course <laughs> it's my fault. I knew it. Yeah, Fuck. exactly. I'm sorry, but, I'm sorry world. But I I think your account of just that warp tour when it was you guys and, and my chem, it really was like the two thousands equivalent of like some of the Walpalooozas where yes. or, or that or that tour where it was like Pearl Jam Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana all at once, briefly, was that kind of yes. crux moment that people that I think people actually have forgotten about, that that was th- that moment. And I think about economy. that all
0: the time, that tour at the Jim Rose Sideshow side Circus with all the with pumpkins and all the fake bands, and I think that was even in a Simpsons episode.
1: And the, the other thing that really struck me as far as your stage presence, and you were always not even borderline reckless on stage, seemingly... Just thrashing around like an absolute lunatic on stage. It was always exciting to watch you. Still is. Oh, thanks. And, but I mean, two things that you reveal is that a lot of what you were exorcising with a O O on stage were these issues with your mom, which of course I had no idea about, and sorry to hear about. Oh, no, thanks. And but that you made that direct connection was was pretty powerful for me.
0: Yeah, I didn't think about it until later. I mean, I didn't have that hindsight. Even, even you know, several years after, I couldn't do that anymore. Because, again, it was the back surgery. It, it was all the back problems that stopped me from being able to. I'm not allowed to twist. Bending, I have to be careful with. I mean, you know, in the last couple of tours that we have done, the, the big old hella mega tours with Green Day and Weezer, the U.S. run and the Europe run, I've been moving around on stage, but I bet to people it looks... Basic and boring, but for me, it's a big deal, because it's you know the fact that I can move around at all is a miracle. But yeah i I spent so much of my youth. I mean again, I started I went on my first four when I was 15, I started fall boy when I was 17, I tried to leave home as quickly as possible, and I think when I look back on it, it was to get away from her as much as I love my my mother, may she rest in peace and all of the things that you're supposed to say, so the theoretical God doesn't strike you down. <laughs> I, you know, I I was escaping her. It, my antics on stage were both. It, it was it was it was both me like abusing myself because I was made to feel like I should abuse myself. I was made to feel not good about myself. I'll just say that. And then also it was in a way tantamount to like self harm, cutting. In a way, it's it's feeling other pain or feeling something else extreme to forget something else extreme. I mean, you said it was enjoyable to watch. I felt I was good at it. It was something I was good at. I was good at. <laughs> being an idiot. And so I I leaned into it. Unfortunately, I couldn't do that for the rest of my life. You know, I think in a way myself. And not, I mean like Pete was also moving around on stage too. I'm not going to take any, anything away from him. He was doing his fair share. But we were we were the production before we could afford lights and video screens and fire and all the things that
1: make it so we don't really have to move on stage cuz you're just like, "Oh, fire." <laughs> How primal. I mean, the the other thing is, I mean, like that crazy, that wild story where you, I think, I think it was on Warped Tour where you stage dived into and landed spine first into on a barricade, which seems to have led directly to one of your back surgeries. It must have. How could it not? It just doesn't take a detective.
0: There's the videos online somewhere. It's, I used to just be embarrassed that it existed. Now I like that it exists because I can go, see, that happened. I told you. It led to my bad, I mean, it's, ter- it's, it's terrible. But yeah, I thought I could clear like a 15-foot barricade. I was so used to jumping into crowds. And that was like a thing, again, abusing myself, using my body as a tool of entertainment, I thought was just, it was a way to get people to like us, And so I was like, I need to keep, I need to push it, push it, push it. And so, but again, I, I came out of that scenario instantly feeling okay. And I don't even know if I felt bad the next day. But then, of course, not thinking at all as like a teenager. Not too long after that, you know, I herniated a disc, and it gets really bad really quickly, and then the doctors go, if you don't get this assault, you're not gonna be able to walk. <laughs> I, I, I okay, I'll do the surgery.
1: There also was a thing about Pete putting you on, uh, you sit on the hood of the car, while Pete drove 20 miles per hour and hit the brakes to see how far you'd go? What the fuck was that? I don't know, man. It's like, it's this culture that existed both
0: in punk rock and hardcore, which is just reckless, abandoned for entertainment. I don't know if I thought it would get me some sort of like, wow, that guy's crazy respect. I don't think it ever did. I think people were like, that guy's a fucking idiot. (laughs) What a moron. But but yeah, it came from that, that world of punk, hardcore skateboarding, just doing extreme shit, just to impress your friends, and also to see if you could do it.
1: And the other thing I wanted to, to make sure I touched upon is Flawboy is working or was working on a new album that is a return to rock. You said that's something that you, something you've been pushing for for a while. Yeah, I don't know if it's an album. I think we're just <laughs> working on songs
0: that I don't know if they're going to like go anywhere. We're always working on songs. I think like we've talked about that in the past. There's never like a not working on music thing. We're working on some stuff that was guitar-based. I don't know what's happening with it. I think everyone's lives have become... Yeah, we all have kids we're all doing other things and I think it kind of unfortunately went to the back burner but I did like what we were doing.
1: That's the thing with books is it, it captured a moment when that seemed like the next album and you were very excited about it. Yeah it captured a moment that is now passed that's
0: the unfortunate <laughs> aspect of books they don't update very well but by the time that comes out who knows what's going to be the deal. I could be wrong about the songs I could be right I, I wouldn't I don't want anyone to like hedge their bets on there being another anything you know I think Again, we're always making songs,
1: you know? I guess the logic would be that in the sort of post-Olivia Rodrigo, Machine Gun Kelly, return mm-hmm. of of return of pop punk sure. thing, that that would actually be the smart move, <laughs> wouldn't it? As, I would, as, as
0: Godfathers? I, I would think so, yeah.
1: My daughter, my oldest daughter, loved
0: Olivia Rodrigo, loves her. And I, I'm glad because there's, a guitar on her record and but that's you know old man selfish boy you know at the end of the day i try to play her Zeppelin or the kings or even a more contemporary band and i played her black flag not long ago like early black flag like keith morris black flag else? I no else. Situation. and i was like this is the stuff that like got me into punk rock here we go and i put it on, and she's like this is Dad, yeah, this is very bad. <laughs> like, no, it's not. It's awesome. It's the future, man. But yeah, I like, listen, I love that the guitar, I want the guitar. I love the guitar so much. I've always, you and I have talked about it. I think one of our earliest times together was the midst of a Rolling Stone interview. And we went to, do we go to Manny's in New York? And I bought a,
1: it. was a music store, yes, for sure. And I bought it, yeah. and I bought a
0: Telecaster 72 Telecaster that I still have. And nice. And I love, I love guitars. I don't buy them as much because I have too many of them. And I'm very grateful I have so many, but I love them. And so, yeah, it made me sad to see that they were, they became dinosaur instruments. You know, I wrote a little thing for Variety when Eddie Van Halen died about Van Halen. And just worrying that, was this the death of the guitar? Is the greatest guitar god composer's death the final male in the coffin, because he was one of the last guys to do it like that and do it in such a cool way. It was corny, and uh, but no, not at all. In fact, like even seeing a band like the the a British band, the Idols, or just Idols. They're not the, the Idols, just Idols. Get so huge. I mean, they're huge in the UK and they're not as big in America, but still, I went and saw them at the Wiltern in Los Angeles and it was a sold out show and a sea of people just moving along to this band. And it gave me some hope that, oh, there are newer guitar bands that are resonating with younger people. And then to see it again with Olivia Rodrigo or even Machine Gun Kelly make that album and have a new guitar bass record. It's just, you know, whether or not you like it. And I have some old curmudgeon friends that. Think what Machine Gun Kelly did was lame, but I argue back and I go, "At least there's guitar on it. Like, isn't that what you want?"
1: Yeah, it's not to be an executive producer here, but when that is in the mainstream and you guys do that thing, it seems like you guys should do that thing. But that's just my advice. I
0: love, I love your executive <laughs> production. I mean, we'll see what I would, I would love that to, as the guitar player in the band. And it's not a, it's it would be, a, it would be, it, it would be a, to say stupid. To say that I that to say that we haven't made records of late that are guitar light, I'll just say, you know, it would it, be I would be ignoring the obvious. So yeah, it would be nice to make a record where the guitar is a little more up front. You know, we did start that way as a guitar based rock band, and be cool to go back to those roots. We'd have to find a way to do it that doesn't sound like Fall Aboy Boy from two thousand five. You know, that might be cool for somebody else to do. It that wouldn't be cool for us to do. <laughs>
1: It's the annoying thing you got to find a new way to do the thing it you, become
0: you' become just a heritage act at that point. I think that's one thing that, for better or worse, whether or not and I'm proud of you know the majority of what we've done, even if I objected to some of it at the time and kicked and screamed through it i'm I'm still proud because we've continued to try to like look forward rather than go back and go, well, let's just make court tree again. If we just make that again, that'll satisfy a a niche market, and we can just do that for. X amount of years. No, I mean, we've tried to continue to forge ahead and stay with it and part of the
1: zeitgeist and all these other terms and words that are... Yeah, you know what I mean. I do. You had a lot of hardcore metal stuff that really changed your life. Mm -hmm. But as far as the guitar and what really made you first yearn to play the guitar, it turns out it was Slash in the November Rain video.
0: Yeah, I was, my parents had me playing musical instruments, my mom mostly, to be fair to her. She had me do that because that's what you like did. Like that's what parents had their kids do in the 90s and before, which was just, yeah, you you take piano lessons. That There were, public schools still had money dedicated to the like arts. So we had school band. So, you know, it started with piano. Didn't do well with piano because my mom took me to a completely blind cat lady. And it was just creepy and weird and kind of horror tinged. And so I didn't really become comfortable in that scenario. So then I ended up picking up viola for the school band, then trombone for the school band. None of that was exactly, none of it felt like me. I was just doing it to appease a parental direction. And then I happened to be growing up during, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't say, I mean, I did, but didn't grow up during the advent of MTV. I mean, MTV started in the 80s, but I was a, just a child, a baby, baby child. But then, you know, in the 90s, MTV was still quite big, and it was where you would find out about new bands and new records and new artists, and music videos were still the biggest thing in the world. And when I saw Slash do his two solos in the November Rain video... And I saw how cool he looked, holding a Wes Paul, playing specifically in front of the church, that first solo. I was like, oh, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. I'm not as good as, as that, but I'm. <laughs> I got to do it, sort of.
1: And... You know, after your parents were done taking you through a tour of some of the most anti-Semitic towns in in the Midwest, yes, as <laughs> growing up, which sounds really fun. It was fun. You, it's a blast, man. <laughs>
0: you got to try it if you haven't. If you haven't been hate mongered, uh, I recommend it. You know, it's a it's it makes you feel nice on the inside.
1: You then landed in the North Shore of Chicago, famously, and started. You just started going out at night to chicago and hanging out in the hardcore scene as a young kid I hey, dad and you met pete wentz and he had this band arma angelus and he needed a bass player a substitute bass player for a tour and you were 15 years old and not a bass player. No. <laughs> Other than that, you were the perfect guy. Right. Uh, despite being in high school and not playing the, this, that specific instrument yet. Totally uh, unencumbered uh, and skilled. <laughs> but something, you know, he liked you. That's. I, I mean, guess that's what so. it comes down to. He liked you. Thought you were cool, and he somehow convinced your parents to uh, let you tour with Angelus. Stop, okay. Red, red.
0: It's very interesting. The dynamics between my parents was it was odd. It was unbalanced. My mother, who was unbalanced, somehow called the shots at the kids, and my father, who was who is balanced and kind and thoughtful, would just defer to my mother at the end of the day. I think, and you know, I understand it a little more now, being married. At least my my. <laughs> My wife's very balanced and kind Love to think she's the boss I, 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 in our dynamic as well, for better, not for worse. But in that situation, it was probably for worse, but it worked out for me. So basically, it was really Pete had to convince my mom, and I'm not saying he did anything wrong, but I don't know how hard it was to convince my mother of anything because she did not have all of her faculties. I think as long as she saw Pete as somebody she could trust, and she did, and again, Pete didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he I've I said this before about him. I've committed it to to writing. He's a very charismatic he's he's got a lot of charisma that guy. You know? And he's able to sell my parents on the fact that I would be safe. And I mean I came back. So he fulfilled <laughs> his promise. I was safe.
1: They hazed the fuck out of you, though. They hazed me like crazy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they did. That's what happens, though. That's what happens. First off, I was was a teenager amongst early 20-somethings. And I think when you're the new guy, I mean, it's obviously, this is what happens in the army, right? New recruits get hazed, you know? And I think it happens in frats. And I think it happens in many male cultures and subcultures that the new guy, the young guy, the inexperienced guy, he doesn't know what it's about. He doesn't know how hard this is. And he's gonna find out. Or we're gonna harden him up quick. And that's what they did. But then, yeah, ever since then, I've been ready to tour. (laughs) So I mean, it it did the thing, but I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I was 15, I cried. I cried like crazy. I'm a sensitive person to begin with. And then I was a, a child, so, but I'm not, I'm still friends about all (laughs) of them. That's the thing. (laughs) You know, they didn't do anything to me that was so reprehensible that I I hold a grudge or that I'm scarred for the rest of my life. That's not the thing that scarred me. If anything scarred me, that wouldn't
1: be it. And you had a conversation or a series of conversations with Pete, as I said, about specifically, you use the word pop-punk band. Because of the micro-categorization that afflicts rock and other genres. People really used the term emo for you guys uh, in mm-hmm. the 2000s, just as they used it for uh, My Leaving aside the fact that those two bands actually sounded nothing alike, other than yeah. the hardcore influences, but you were always a pop punk band, and here you just were on tour with Green Day and with Weezer. But th- the word emo was thrown really hard at you guys, though. Obviously,
0: I don't know why. I mean. <laughs> I didn't see emo became a four letter word for a little while, became a, a derogatory swear, which is weird because, like, again, growing up in hardcore, emo was like Rites of Spring, or there was a small label called Ebolition Records, and a lot of their bands were considered emo bands. Post a lot of post hardcore was seen as synonymous with emo again, micro categorizations post hardcore. I don't even know what that fucking means anymore. Yeah, somebody brought that up. I thought this band was a post-hardcore band. I'm like, I don't, what the fuck does that... Tell me what the fuck post-hardcore means. You tell me. Describe it to me. You can't. Because nobody can. What does that mean? But we were, the way I saw it, we were hardcore kids that really liked the Descendants. That's how it started. And, and we, and, we and, and more contemporary at the time, we really liked a Saves of the Day record specifically through being cool. I mean, I've, you know, you've never been shy about That's what we were trying to do when we made, made up Take This to Your Grave It was we were trying to do our version of Through, be, of, uh, through Being Cool. And they were also New Jersey hardcore kids doing a pop-punk band, you know? So we were doing our own Chicago version of that. That's really what it was for us. We were bringing hardcore influences into pop music, essentially. And then we got the emo moniker. and. I mean, I wear it with a badge of honor at this point because it just is what it is. I'm not going to try to fight it. I'm not offended by it. And the fact that, like, we just went on tour with Green Day and Weezer, it was, like, honestly, three bands. First of all, I never thought we would go on a tour like that. I still see ourselves... I have a hard time seeing ourselves as a as a band of that size that's able to do that. It's so hard for me to step back and see the hugeness of Fall Out Boy because I'm so in it. But, like, you know, when Weezer came out, they were... Kind of seen, I mean, more as a band with like an, an indie rock edge, I guess, at the end of the day. Part of that was just because Rivers wears glasses, by the way. That's a huge part of it. Green Day was always just seen as a punk band. I mean, they're I guess pop punk in the way where they broke into the mainstream. But yeah, I guess pop punk, sure. I just always saw them as kind of a punk band. What are we all? Are we all now emo? Are we all pop punk? What are we all? It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> i don't know we all write hooky music right
1: and it, it, it's sort of miraculous that you you acquired patrick stump from a record store basically yes. and then you recruited andy hurley who i i guess had already played in armangelis Andy
0: was not he was in armangelis after i was in it i think he I, mostly,
1: I think he mostly just like
0: i forget if he like played on no he didn't he like filled in he wasn't even like the 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 constant drummer
1: gotcha yeah it's confusing because tim from super- rise against was also an armor angelus but yeah two members before he was like the bassist two members before not at the same time as you basically revolving
0: door policy yeah, and all of right. these bands yeah
1: you got kind of the great drummer you knew from the scene andy hurley to be yeah. the drummer and then there you were one thing that struck me is how much you hate the album even evening out with your girlfriend you despise yeah. that album i die-
0: Yeah, it almost broke the band up, you know. Hmm. I think after we made it, there was a nobody, I mean, Patrick, I know, was like, oh, this is not what I wanted to make. There was a possibility of just not doing the band anymore, because we just didn't like how it came out. I, at that time, was so, I think, focused on keeping the band together and figuring out how to make it work that I just kept saying, no, we're not going to stop. No, we're not going to stop. I was very hard-edged about that. Very, very much tunnel vision. But... I mean, it's not like maybe someone gets pleasure out of it, and I can't take that away from somebody. I can't tell someone how to, you know, subjectively feel about a record. But considering the record we made right afterwards, which I still look back at Take This to Your Grave, and I go, well, that's, we made a good record. Like, feel how you want to feel, we made a good record. Evening Out With Your Girlfriend was just a nightmare of a massive of a band. Just It was a, a snapshot of a band who really had not figured themselves out yet at all. And I'm glad it exists, by the way. I would never erase it. I think it's interesting, if anything, to, to listen to that, then to go to the next record and then da-da-da-da, you know, to see the progression.
1: It's amazing to remember that From Under the cork tree in 2005, it spawned multiple hit singles. We did all the pre-production live in a room. And still, records don't get made like that anymore. You know, rarely
0: do you, get, you have the money to get all the band together and spend a month in a rehearsal space, with a producer, we spent a good month and change in a rehearsal space with a producer, with Neil Avron, working these songs out, really working them out and going, we don't have a verse here. What, what's, what would be a cool verse? Well, What about this part? Oh, that sounds cool. Let's try that now.
1: You know, really as a band doing that. I didn't realize the label thought that Sugar were going down is going to flop because that was of, in the whole, that whole decade, it was one of the songs that for me, when you first heard it, it, was like, this is an obvious hit.
0: Very interesting. I think maybe the it might've been the wordiness, which hadn't really, was, wasn't really common on the radio. I mean, wordiness yeah. historically did not go along with like succinct pop music and succinct hits. So that might've been part of it. And but yeah, there wasn't, like, you could you could feel the sort of lack of enthusiasm. You know, there was this hope we would bring it, and they felt we didn't bring it. And then they were wrong. We brought it. You know, the, the, the video was a hit, too. The video that we made, which we weren't even so certain about, to be fair. We came in, we had, up until that point, been really in control of, like, making our own music videos. It was the first time we came in and someone's like a director had written a treatment. We felt very much that we didn't have a choice. And so we kind of went into it with a uh, reserved excitement, I'll just say. But it was so weird and so cool at the same time. You know, the location, the, the antler boy, all of that. And seeing that and, and going, okay, well, I mean, maybe this will be something. We'll just have to see after he's done shooting and editing this thing. And it all worked out. Strangely enough.
1: It's so weird because TRL was still around. TRL was around. It's because it, I think people... It's just history gets so compressed and fucked up in people's <laughs> minds. So it already feels like it should have been gone by 2005. Yeah. But, but no, it was still around. You guys were a TRL band. like, And it's sort of in the some of the last days of TRL, but still. Which is really, really interesting. Yeah, um, TRL
0: was still big when, we, when we'd show up. And it was TRL with Carson Daly. And it was the thing. We were on TRL a lot at that time. But yes, it was the last era of it. I have a TRL
1: award somewhere. <laughs> and, and then and then in February 2007, you came out with in- Infinity on High, and it sounds like from the book, your frustrations with the process were, were peaking at, at that point with your sort of place in the band. I am an arms dealer Fitting you with weapons in
0: the form of Yeah, but I think it was also my fault. I mean, that was around when I started When I started checking out and, and, and taking, you know, pill form heroin <laughs> and pill form morphine and pill form other drugs that I don't remember what they are, but I remember there being other colored pills. Yeah. You know, I it took me longer, I think, also to find myself within the band than it did other members of the band. And I think in some ways I'm still searching. It goes back to what we said at the beginning of this, that I have a hard time feeling satisfied by just a moment of success. I, I'm i searching, always searching for the next thing, which means I'll, I'm never really going to find it. I'm never really going to be settled. Living in the moment, right? It's, it's hard for me. If I had just sat in pre-production and lived in the moment and just kept myself involved in a regular, normal way, I probably would have been fine. But instead, I really think I only have myself to blame. I don't think anyone else is to blame in that scenario. But I think my frustration with the process might have also been as things got bigger and be, things became more real, I started to feel like I started to feel more false. So the imposter syndrome started coming in further. And I think again, I was quelling that with drugs
1: and uh, folia de which yeah. I always liked. I like I didn't that too. Re- I didn't realize that th- it got to the extent that you're, I didn't realize that it got to the extent where fans were giving you the middle finger from yeah. the audience. It yeah. really, that really happened? Yeah, people hated it. It's so, the whole thing was fucked
0: up. So first off, you know, you have, you have the, the single, I don't care, right? <laughs> So, so we make that single, it's going to be Push as the first single, sorry. We make the song, it's going to be Push as the first single. And before, I think before it even goes out, yeah, before, yes, this had to happen before it went to radio. Musicologists, I believe, or I'll just say it, Universal, I won't I won't get too specific, put it through the ringer and said, mm, this shares DNA with spirit in the sky. So we're going to give co-writing credit to Norman Greenbaum. I'm arguing, and I go, that riff, I mean, John Lee Hooker was playing that riff before Norman Greenbaum. What are you talking about? It's just a standard blues riff. You're crazy, man. At least let's give it to him. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, we're going to give it to anybody. Anyway, so that happens, souring us on the song. Song comes out, it's a hit, but the label insists that it comes out so far before the release of the record that by the time the record comes out, no one realizes this album is the same one with the hit song, I Don't Care. So the hit or the, the success of the single has no effect on the record. And so record sales do not go so well because of that. On top of that, we had pushed so far creatively that our fans at the time felt that we had abandoned the sound of fallout boy more or less and so we go on tour and yeah people show up to the shows to stand in the front row to flick us off to give us the middle finger
1: i guess they booed they booed too allegedly there's some
0: booing yeah yeah i mean like again you know a fallout boy fan is not a slayer fan it's not going to get too physically aggressive there's not going to be anything thrown no threats of fighting but yeah booing middle fingers fuck yous you know just general negativity.
1: There was a, a period in Australia, there was like a day in Australia when you guys kind of had it out with each other, and after that, there was a hiatus. Yeah, I mean,
0: a thing that, I mean, we've talked about this to you before and in other areas, but I think what people don't realize is Fall Boy, up until Fully do had toured relentlessly. Like, I really feel like I had Maybe a month out of the year total, not consecutively, where I was home. So like 10, 11 months out of the year, I was on tour. We all were. And that's just not good for you, no matter who you are. No matter how much you want it or don't want it, it isn't good for you. Touring ages you quicker. It makes it so you cannot plant any roots. It's very hard to get a routine going. It's very easy to get lost in the darkest parts of yourself while you're on tour. I think anyone who has done that, whether you're a musician or a stand-up comedian or whatever other t- touring, Cirque du Soleil, well, you know, in whatever capacity that you tour, touring can be hard on you. So, so you had that going on, and that had pushed us to a limit. And then we had been regularly making records every cycle. So, you know, we put out a record, and then about two years later, put out another record. And it... it You know, and you have to make that record in between the times we're touring and making records, touring and making records, touring and making records. There is no time for the individuals in the band to have family lives, home lives, take a fucking breath. And so that drove us to an apex where by the time we got to, yeah, it was Australia on the Foley tour, we got in like a huge fight. I mean, I don't remember all the specifics, but... I know Patrick and I wanted to take a break. Pete did not want to take a break. Andy, to his credit, is very, like, go with the flow. <laughs> but I don't know exactly what his role in that fight was. And I was at, you know, I had not done the amount of therapy or the amount of growing that I, had, that I have now done. So I think at one point I just, like, stormed out of the room <laughs> because I just could not, I did not have, I just was going to explode. And I think the continuation of that happened after, I forget what it was, but it was some, some like pre-taped performance in Chicago. And we sat down with our manager in the dressing room of the green room at that studio. And just, we were like, all right, we're just going to take a break after this. We're going to take a break. And we really always thought of it as a break. Other people, you know, we thought of it as a hiatus. We thought of it as truly the definition of a hiatus. We're going to take a, an extended period of time away from this. And eventually come back to it. But again, you know, some members of my band posted things on the internet which belied that definition. But that wasn't the way I had experienced our conversation or the way I had 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 understood it. And really that was the truth of it, despite what people had knee-jerk posted and things like that. No, it was never like we're gonna never do this again. It's like we've done this so hard for so many years that now I think we've earned X amount of time for a break. We need it. Otherwise, we are really going to break up.
1: And you started an excellent side project. Not Thanks, to man. Damn it with the words uh, "side project," the damn things. And I love you said that. I love that you said that. That was probably the last time that a record label gave a lot of money to a <laughs> side project from a big band because of yeah. the heavy sushi orders that gobbled a lot of that budget. Two really good albums from that band. Thank you. And with Anthrax's Scott Ian, and among other people, and, and of course Andy from Fall Out Boy and just, I think, helped you regain some of your confidence and remember what you're good at. And then Fall Boy got back together in 2013 mm-hmm. and, you know, did something that was really kind of improbable. You made two albums in, in 2013 and 2015 that spawned genuine hits quite a few years in music time after the, the initial run. And, and then you made Mania, which I guess didn't really have any hits and you're not super fond of, I guess.
0: I don't know what people think, but we definitely didn't think that we were going to come back from that hiatus to the amount of success we came back to. So, we had made the record in like in secrecy. Nobody knew we were making it with Butch Walker in Santa Monica.
1: This is Save Rock and Roll. This is Save Rock and Roll. Sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know the information, but I'm not saying it. Yes, yeah, so we're making Save Rock and Roll or what became Save Rock and Roll with Butch Walker in Santa Monica in secret. We were very careful to not say a word about it. We really wanted the entire launch of it to be special and to be a surprise. We thought at the very least, if none of the songs hit, the surprise will be enough to make some sort of waves. You know, we've been gone for four years. The music industry had changed a lot in those four years. It was the first time we had experimented with co-songwriting. That was what people I think don't understand is at least, I don't know how how it's changed now, but between the time we stopped being a band or put, went on the hiatus and came back, co-songwriting became a, the kind of the, your only path to getting on the radio for some reason, if you had to do these co-writes. So we started doing these co-writes and we made, you know one song that came out of that was Light em Up. So light up. Decided to lead with that song. We made that music video of two chains that we weren't even in. And it it hit. It all worked. It all was really big. We were in Chicago for the launch of that song. And you could it was instantly like received so well. And uh, and yeah, that record is a big success. And the next record we continue to succeed with centuries. With Thurman, those songs were, were big
1: hits.
0: We even had songs on, on, say, rock and roll that did, like, all right as, you know, singles has not didn't hit as hard, but still did okay at alternative rock radio and all those places that do matter. And we had this formula now we were doing, you know, this formula. We we're, we're co-writing and we are making records in a very different way. We talked about Court Tree and how that record overall was like this very acoustically driven, very more more analog way of making a record. And this became a far more digital, far more piecemeal, co-writing. Again, we were so used to writing all of our own songs ourselves. We we're doing co-writes. We we're doing, experimenting with all these things that are out of our comfort zones, which is good to do. It's good to experiment with things out of your comfort zones. But then... After that record, after American Beat, American Psycho, I know I had expressed, like, hey, maybe we should do it our, as well as, uh, Do it again ourselves. I think Patrick had expressed that as well. And we started making the beginning of Mania. And I remember Patrick had a recording studio for a little while in Furbank that he was renting. And I would go there, and we would work on some stuff. And we started putting together some things. And it was cool, and it was interesting. We released a couple of the songs later on, like, a little kind of EP. I think they're probably sitting on the internet somewhere, but they never made the record. The full, all those songs actually got scrapped and I became so frustrated with just them getting scrapped without really having a conversation about it. It was just nope, we're not doing this. We're just gonna go back and kind of try to repeat the same formula we did in the last two records. I I'd said I'm 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 gonna extricate myself from this. This is not what I want to do. You yeah, know, I'll come in like you know, when you have some stuff together, give it to me if you want me to throw some ideas on there or whatever. I'll do it in my recording studio. I'll and I did that a little bit. But overall, I kept I kept I stayed pretty much out of it more or less. And I don't know. I, I've come to now believe, and I don't know if this is uh, ego maniacal to believe so, but I think if there's a member of Fall Upwood not involved in the making of a record, like not really. With their heart not really in it, the record's going to come out a little weird and a little different, and maybe it's just not going to work as well. And I think Mania has some cool ideas and interesting stuff in there, but it didn't work as well.
1: You're the last of a dying breed, and I and I
0: and I can't say I love it. And again, I like stuff on there, but I don't love it. And 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 again, it's what leads me to at least want in the future, hopefully, to go back to making a record where you know it doesn't sound like old Fall Out Boy. It should sound like whatever current Fall Out Boy sounds like, but with guitars, bass, drums, vocals. I love synthesizers, synthesizers that we play. You know, let's play. All, we can play music. Let's play the music. Let's not go for samples. Let's not try to reach for singles. At this point, we've had so many hit singles. Do we really even need to reach for singles anymore? I, I think we should just make a cool record. So yeah.
1: Hmm. And but TBD. <laughs> to be determined.
0: Yeah. 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 Again, I, I, we, we're always writing music. We have no idea the amount of unreleased music this band has, as a, a albums worth of unreleased music. Yeah. You know, like even I. Normally, and I stopped doing this because I was killing myself. up I used to I, and and I used to write at least sixty to eighty ideas. I'd record for a record, you know, just on my own, and that's less than Patrick would write <laughs> far less. We have so much stuff just, have, just, just 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 an embarrassment of riches
1: are there completed songs going back to earlier eras that we haven't heard? Is that what you're saying or or I don't know if they're fully completed.
0: Yeah. They're probably, they're probably like demoed up through like a chorus or, or two or something like that, missing a bridge,
1: you know, not like, n- not fully arranged. There's like Corktree era songs, unfi- like in that state. Yeah, who knows, we may not have them anymore, but we did at
0: one point. They're
1: probably mm. sitting on a hard drive somewhere. Mm. gotta, you know, if they're still doing box sets that you, you guys got to unearth that stuff.
0: That's what is really good for. Those guys if they don't they don't forget a thing, but you know, yeah, that would be great to do one day if we got to make a box set,
1: but there will be another album. are you confident of that? I won't say, i'm gonna say i'm I'm confident enough to say that
0: that is not within reason, but i I cannot because I, I'm telling the truth, there is no album. Right hmm. now, yeah. You know, there's nothing being made right now. It's just you know doing what we're usually doing, which is writing. and I think it, I think yeah, it sir. felt I felt at the time that maybe we were writing towards something, and then you know life got in the way for everybody.
1: I mean, including more back surgery and mental health issues for you. Yeah, like.
0: yeah. Double double dose. I had I had to get a disc replacement surgery, which means one of my discs in my spine went it just it just went out it was just it was just flat like all the fluid and everything in there was, was gone it was just flat nothing so they had to go into my abdomen and basically like a c-section you know take out organs all that stuff get in there put a metal disc in my spine close me back up and then i continued to work on different writing projects during my recovery and i had like a mental breakdown because i just didn't realize how major my surgery was
1: and it was insane
0: <laughs> just i'm not gonna taking care of myself trying to get better at it
1: mm. how did that all intersect with all the Hell mega touring i
0: planned it where i was in so okay I, I planned as best as i could so the disc went out before the tour started and the pain got gradually worse so by the end of the tour i was definitely at let's do surgery luckily i said just the the fates delved me a pretty decent hand to where I was able to get through that whole tour without being in immense pain. Got through the tour, got the surgery three days after Christmas on the 27th of December, and that gave me technically enough months to recover until going on tour again the following, uh, this past summer in in 2022. So I planned it, and I, I kept everybody abreast of the situation and Yeah, I realized at the end of the day, venues need to get booked when venues need to get booked, tours happen when tours happen. And God forbid, if I I couldn't go on the tour, I would have somebody fill in for me. But I didn't have to do that.
1: It's such a truth about being a musical life or a rock and roll life or when you... You know, you have your earlier tours where you're doing your best to injure yourself, and then doing doing a later tour where you already have a slip disc and you're just trying to get get through without like agonizing pain is is such a such a truth for so many people's experience of of touring through over over a series of decades.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I'm not like unique. I mean, you look at a guy like Mick Mars. God forbid, you have your bones calcify, you know, and you become an immovable statue. I can't imagine the amount of pain. He has been in for the amount of years he's had to deal with this and 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 other folks i'm not even thinking of but i do think this business the business of touring ages you quicker than just put stressors on you you know just the constant moving around the nomadic lifestyle is in itself a stressor i think generally people do better with routes with schedules and touring the only schedule you have to adhere to is make sure you're ready to get on stage for one to two hours every other day to you know two days, depending.
1: I mean, in the book, you, you say a friend watched Let It Be and compared you to George Harrison <laughs> in your role in the, in the band, which, which is really interesting, or at least the way you f- relate to the band, or however you want to phrase it. Yeah. But unlike George, you're not walking out, the band is still going. Do you see... It's already gone so far. Do you see you guys doing this in in your fifties as as sort of just a a thing with no particular ending, the way so many of the big bands end up being, (sighs) like Rolling Stones. Yeah, but also it's true now of like of of Pearl Jam of the, the Chili Peppers of even even fucking Guns N' Roses mostly got back together. Or even even Green Day and Weezer are older than you guys and, they and, are. and are still around.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, Green Day, those guys, I think they're in their 50s.
1: Yeah, I, I don't ask people their ages anymore. I'm afraid <laughs> of offending everybody.
0: But, I mean, they look good, I'll tell you that. And they have more energy than I do, which makes me feel certain ways. But I don't know. I really do not know. I don't see it, like, I don't see an end. I think as long as we still want to do it. I th- again, you know, we'd have to... In theory, make another record that we're all excited about. if we keep making if we make more records that we're not excited about, or at least that I'm not excited about, <laughs> I'll say, I won't speak with the rest of the band. If we make records that I'm not excited about, then I don't want to do it because I want to do things i want to make I want to make things I like and I want to present them to people. I don't want to make things I don't like, Nick, like, here's the thing I don't like. I'm also not invested in it. What do you think, guys? But as long as we're continuing to make, Music that we like, and we have fun playing the shows themselves. I think we'll keep doing it. I don't know, man. I mean, I'll tell you, just like personally, with with my back problems, I'm very curious to see how I feel in my fifties. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'll be 38 in like two weeks on September 1st, and some near nearing 40. And you know, since this last back surgery, it, this is the most intense and it's hard, man. Just getting out of bed can be hard some days. I have young kids, eight and four. I mean, they'll get older and they won't want me to run on, run around with them as much, but currently they do and I feel terrible because I can't do what they want me to do with them. And so, what's it going to be like on stage when I'm 50? I don't know. But at the end of the day, I go back to a guy like Mick Mars. I go, he's fucking doing it, so I don't know <laughs> what excuse do I have, but... It's it's my own experience. It's, it's my own I'm body. Sorry, you know, it's,
1: it's a little funny to me that you. <clears throat> it's a little funny to me that you go to the most extreme example. But of, but if of, he's, yeah, but if the most yeah,
0: extreme yeah. guy is doing yeah, it, yeah yeah yeah. Then I have no excuse to not
1: do it. Yes.
0: You know, then I'm just being a baby, right? <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, yeah. Pain aside, if there's good music to tour on, and we enjoy being around each other, then we'll keep doing it. If there's are shitty, if they're shitty music, we're having a shitty time together. Then why do it? We've had success. We're not like we're so lucky. I don't think we're doing it for the money anymore. You know, we made we made the money we we never thought we would
1: make. So what's the point anymore? The point has to be for good music and good times, man. I think it's less of a thing now. I mean, the, you know, both everyone in the band has talked about just when when and I love Pete. He's still very famous, but yeah. you know, there's that period of like. He was like the dude. He was so famous he was. and getting more attention than Patrick, who was the front man, which was an unusual mm-hmm. kind of scenario. Yeah. It, it, just the, the Pete Wentz of it all is was, was an interesting factor in Fall Boy, but, but maybe less so these days. To be fair, I think Pete has had some things that have in,
0: happened in his life that him, that have brought him back down to grounding level, I'll say. And I don't know, there have been new people that have come out to replace that entity. There are new versions of that now, younger versions that appeal to younger kids. I think as we get older, we're not as appealing to younger people and and youth culture drives everything. I'm not sure there is that salacious element. There was so much salacious stuff happening around his celebrity from certain photographs, to marriages or a relationship, they'll just say that we're, you know, you can't deny we're in the tabloids and we're fodder for celebrity culture. He's just not doing that anymore. I don't think he wants that so much anymore. He still is wholly recognizable and the most recognizable member of the band. He is the front man of the band, even if he isn't the singer of the band. He's the guy that banters between songs. He's the beacon, he, he leads the band. And because he leads the band, I think no matter how long Fall Out Boy is around, those that are like temperamental Fall Out Boy fans or just like the singles will always see Fall Out Boy as Pete. And that's okay, that's what a band is, right? Bands, bands are that, unless you're like a real fan of a band and know who all the members are and how they exist in the band and the ecosystem and yada, yada, yada. If you're a Fairweather fan, You're like, yeah, that one guy, you know?
1: And that's that's, There's got to be a face. It's just a... a, There has to be a face.
0: And I think for a while, I felt, this is so embarrassing to say, but it's true, because I think I had done so much driving of the band at the beginning, I wondered or felt terrible that I was left out of being a recognizable figure of the band. i i I did i never became a recognizable figure of the band but now i look at it and i go this was great i get to be in the band and i get anonymity i get the best of both worlds you know it's a huge
1: blessing honestly it is from an adult perspective it's like the best thing that could ever happen to a person it's
0: it's fantastic i once in a while get what i what we jokingly refer to as rock yes I first heard
1: that from I only heard that recently from Phoebe Bridgers. Yes, I love it. Rock. Is, that makes yeah. sense. I feel like Phoebe's kind of
0: like, I don't know her personally, but I know of what she's into, and it feels like we kind of might come from similar scenes to a degree, and she seems like a funny person that gets humor and jokeisms. but I so I'm staying for the summer, uh I got a couple more weeks here in uh in 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 Sag Harbor, New York, with my family. And I took my daughter. We did a daddy-daughter day. I took her to East Hampton to go see uh, DC Super Pets, which is a great movie. It was really fun. But
1: Cohen, uh, Cohen did the same. It was yes. so
0: good, right? Yeah. It was super funny. I didn't realize it was it was the guys who did Lego Batman. But anyway, so we went to a bookstore and uh, beforehand, and got got she she wanted to get some some kind of some Catman books is what she got. So we she got her a couple books. Went up to go pay for them. And a guy at the register just said, hey, I don't normally do this, but I just want to say, you know, I really appreciate everything you do. And I got that, and I go, that's really nice. That's all I have to deal with. And that's, like, nice, and that's fantastic. Did it, like, but in in typical me fashion, it felt good for a minute. Then I moved on, and I went back to feeling like crappy old me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a guy at the end of the day. That's That's the crux of it all. I'm like, I'm a normal, I am a pretty like normal guy. Yes, I have like a bunch of tattoos that I honestly regret getting, but I, I am a pretty normal guy in a very extraordinary s- situation and that I'm still trying to navigate to this day. I still don't understand how to navigate it. And, 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 and re- going back to the book, writing that book was an exercise in trying to continue to figure out how to navigate my own life and in the, in, in the band that I'm in as well.
1: I think one of the things that makes uh, none of this rocks a great memoir period rock memoir aside is the the sort of fearlessness in which you kind of reveal small and big things that could be seen as embarrassing. There's a great there's a great anecdote about these older kids you you were hanging out with as a younger kid and when and it's just nightmarish where one day they're like you know we don't we don't actually like you and there's a really appealing fearlessness to this book. The appearance of fearlessness aside, do you have any trepidation about being about to sort of release all this to the world absolutely <laughs> yeah i'm both
0: like I'm, I'm like no pun intended like i'm a very open book i'm not afraid to talk about the things things that are embarrassing i may preface them with this is embarrassing but she has to be able to get past that little hurdle but i i'm i don't have a ton of shame necessarily but there are moments where I go, holy shit! This is committed to pages. This is going into bookstores and on Amazon. Lots of people are going to read this that I've never met before. Wow, this is a this is an a version of being an open book that I didn't really totally think all the way through. But it, you know, I've it, it goes in waves. Some days I'm like, yeah, I'm totally fine with it. Other days I'm like, oh my god, what did I do? But you know, even hearing from you know. You know, some nice words from you makes me feel a little more comfortable about what I'm about to do. And I think I've read through the book ad nauseum. I don't think I don't. I think I did an okay enough job. And I just want you know, for me, I like I want people to find some of their own respite and some of my fears and anxieties and stories, and see that just because I am doing this like larger than life thing doesn't mean that I don't have problems. I have problems just like you, and uh, you don't have to feel so alone. And all of your embarrassing fears and concerns. I'll 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 do them for you.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's really refreshing to read a, a super neurotic, honest <laughs> rock rock memoir thanks, um, man. And, and congratulations. And there's there's so much in the book that we didn't talk about, so I recommend everyone go out and read it. None of this rocks by Joe Truman. Thanks, Brian. And thanks for joining me.
0: That's my pleasure.
1: And that's our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that is always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.